We welcome you to our Bible study as the Radio Bible Class streams across the nation and around the world. We bring to you a message how Christ ministers to his disciples after the resurrection. We greet you on the internet and radio with a message that Jesus is alive today. Now today's lesson is titled Standing Accused and it's part two and it comes from Hosea 5. But before we start our lesson today, Word Talk Inc. could use your support. Now, you may not know this, but this program and this station are not supported by large donors, a giant corporation, or some big church. We need people like you to support us with your tax-deductible gift. By making a charitable contribution to Word Talking, you're helping spread the good news of Jesus all to those listening in our area and those that follow us on Facebook and Twitter and on social media. So won't you please help? Your gift to Word Talk, Inc. can be made safely and securely by calling us at 601-483-8648. There they can take your credit card information over the phone. Or mail us your gift to Word Talk, Inc. P.O. Box 4334, Meridian, Mississippi 39304. Your gift to Word Talk, Inc. is IRS approved as a 501c3 tax-exempt ministry. Hebrews 13.16 says... Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for sacrifices like these are pleasing to God. If you follow this ministry, you know that three weeks ago we started our study in Hosea. And Hosea is an Old Testament prophet and a member of what is called the Minor Prophets. Those are the books that are from Hosea all the way down to Malachi. They're called Minor Prophets because of the size of the book and not their importance. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and so forth have 50 plus chapters and they're much larger in size compared to the books of the minor prophet. So that's why they're called minor prophets because of their size and not their importance. And a matter of fact, the prophet Hosea was asked by God to do something that nobody else in the Bible was asked to do and that was to marry a prostitute. God does this really for two reasons. First, to illustrate what kind of people the Israelites have become. They become like a prostitute by committing spiritual prostitution through idolatry, worshiping other gods and not the one true living God. The other reason is to show his character of love, how he loves his people even when they don't love him back. He paints a picture for the world to see that even though they are unfaithful to him, he pursues them to win them back. Now, if you missed a lesson, you can go stream them from our Facebook page. That's www.facebook.com slash Radio Bible Class with no spaces between Radio Bible Class. Again, that's www.facebook.com slash Radio Bible Class with no spaces. Now, the first two weeks, we were studying through the first three chapters, and really the first three chapters are about God's instruction to Hosea. Then last week, we kicked off chapter 4, and I told you that chapter 4 through chapter 16 is God's instruction through Hosea to the people of Israel. And we saw in chapter 1 through 3 that Hosea obeys God's instruction and he marries a prostitute named Gomer. Most commentaries agree that for a short period of time, Gomer gave up prostitution and she even bore Hosea his first child. But then she went back into prostitution and the other two children that she had were born out of wedlock. So through this marriage, there are three children, even though two of those children weren't Hosea's, Hosea takes them in and he loves them like their own. God told Hosea to name the firstborn son Jezreel, which means God scatters. And that was the first promise that God gave Hosea to give to the people of Israel that he was going to scatter them if they didn't turn back. 
Gomer then had a daughter, and God tells Hosea to name her Lo-Rahama, which means no mercy. And God tells Hosea to tell the Israelites that he is removing his mercy from them. Last, Gomer has another son, and God tells Hosea to name him Lo-Ami, which means not my child. And that was God saying that you are no longer my children. And this shows how God is grieved over Israel and their unfaithfulness to him. I told you that even though this is about God's relationship with Israel, it's also about our relationship with him. There are many people who stray from God. They will claim they have a relationship with him, but they will put other things above him and they will commit spiritual adultery. But what we can get from this study of Hosea is that God has a relentless love for us. He seeks out and he pursues after us, trying to win us back. And that's really the major theme of this book. And just like we do to our loved ones, it gets hard and tough because God is going to pronounce consequences and judgment on his people. And we'll see some of that even today. We as Christians need to remember, though, there are always consequences when we rebel and sin against God. But just like God wanted to redeem Israel, he wants to redeem us too. But as I told you last week, you can't have redemption until you have repentance. And you can't have repentance until you recognize and admit your sin. So starting off in chapter 4, Hosea is to announce what God has told him about their sin so they can recognize it, they can repent of it, and then he can restore and redeem them from it. If you go to any recovery program, step one is you have to admit you have a problem. You have to admit you need help. And that's what God has asked Hosea to go do across the northern kingdom was to go preach to his people about their sins so they can admit they have a problem, they have sinned, and they can repent and be restored. Last week, we covered chapter four. Today, we'll go into detail on chapter five, but they go together and the Israelites are being accused by the Lord. Let me give you a picture. It's like a courtroom where God is the plaintiff and the Israelites are the defendant. Last week, we saw that the first charge brought against the Israelites were that they were unfaithful. They were accused of being unfaithful. In chapter 4, verse 1, Hosea says, There is no faithfulness or steadfast love and no knowledge of God in the land. Hosea says that God says that you are unfaithful. Think of a marriage because that is the picture God's been painting throughout this book. God is going after Israel because he is the groom and Israel is the bride. Now, Hosea goes on to say that in the land, there is only swearing and lying and murder and stealing and committing adultery, and they break all bounds and bloodshed follows bloodshed. If you look at this accusation, even though it was written 2,800 years earlier, this could be America. If you watch the evening news or you read the newspaper, it's full of lying and murder and stealing and committing adultery. And we have to pay attention to what Hosea is saying because it's still applicable to us today. If God was to ask today about America, what would he have to say? Would he say there is no faithfulness in the land? I believe so. Then down in verse 6 of chapter 4, he says, there is a lack of knowledge. I pointed out last week that the word knowledge here doesn't really do justice to what Hosea is saying. In verse 1, he says, there is no knowledge of God, and that word knowledge there means what you think it would mean. It's an understanding, it's knowing. In verse 1, he's talking about head knowledge, but now in verse 6, if you look at the word knowledge in the Hebrew, he uses the word that means an intimate relationship. 
He is saying that God says, you don't have an intimate relationship with me. The Hebrew word is the same one used in Genesis 4.1, and I'm reading from the King James Version. And Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain. So we see right here that it is an intimate relationship. Here, a man and a woman, but when Hosea uses it, he's really talking about a spiritual intimate relationship with God. What God is saying is that my people are destroyed because they no longer have this intimate relationship with me. They don't love me in their heart the way they once did. They've forsaken my laws and my commandments. They have forsaken my standards. And now when I think about America, the society that we live in today, this hits us right between the eyes like it was written to us. Also last week, I pointed out that God put the responsibility on the priest and the leadership of Israel. About 200 years earlier, the nation of Israel had split. After the split, you had the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And all the Levites, or priests, went down to Judah in the southern kingdom where the temple was. Jeroboam one who caused the split, didn't want his people to go to Judea to worship, so he built his own temple in Dan, and he appointed priests for his own temple. So now you have priests who weren't trained to be priests and didn't really know all of God's commandments. And also Jeroboam had told them to add other gods and idols to his temple. So you had priests that didn't know and hadn't been trained in the law of Moses. Plus now they are also worshiping and teaching worship to more than the one true living God. You can see why God puts the blame on the priests and the leaders. Well, you might say, well, Tim, the people should have known better. But remember back then the Bible didn't exist. All you had were scrolls and there, there was an abundance of them. So People had to be taught and told what the law said and about the law. Now today you can run down the road and find a Bible just about anywhere. And you can go on the internet and you can search commentaries and, and about scripture and what it means. But back then it fell on the priest and over these 200 years, the priest had led Israel further and further away from God. So he puts the onus on them. The second point I made last week from chapter 4 was that God accused Israel of idolatry. Times were good in the northern kingdom. They weren't having to go battle, so there was plenty of stuff to go around. There was plenty of money. The more prosperous they became, though, the more they ignored God. They put other things before God. It wasn't just wooden idols. Again, we see this played out over and over in our churches today with Christians or so-called Christians. You had those that obtain more stuff, and they let that stuff take the place of God. They go to football games because they're able to buy season tickets, but the next day they're too tired to come to church. Or maybe you're like the man I heard about that invited his pastor to come over and pray over his new business, and he did just that. Over the next year, his business got so good that he, he quit coming on Wednesday nights so he could spend time fulfilling orders. Over the next two years, he quit coming on Sunday night because after church and lunch, he would go into the office to get those orders out and get ready for the next week. Then by year five, he didn't come to church at all because he was in business seven days a week, making sure everything was running smooth. His pastor came to, to his business and he asked the man if he could pray over his business on this five-year anniversary. The man stopped what he's doing. He said, sure, pastor. I think that's a great idea. The pastor looked at him and said, I want to tell you, though, before I pray, I'm going to ask God to withdraw your business from you, set you back to where you were five years ago when you would come and spend time with the Lord. We all can learn from that story. 
My point is this, anything can become an idol. It doesn't have to be a wooden or metal image of something that man dreamed up. It can be your car. It can be your job. It can be your hobby. And one of Satan's most used tactic is to get families tied up in sports with their kids. They'll, have, they'll travel around and then they won't come to church on Sunday. I'm all for sports. I'm all for traveling teams. I played on one when I was growing up. My son played on one while he was growing up. And I can hear you right now saying, well, Tim, you don't have to come to church. And I would agree with that because you can have time with the Lord anywhere and everywhere. Plus, you should be having time with the Lord every day, not just on Sunday. But my point is, if you make it to church on Sunday, you're more than likely to have time with the Lord on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday and so forth. So now we're at chapter five, and this is where we're going to pick back up. So look with me at chapter five, verse one, and I'm reading from the ESV, Hosea 5, 1. Hear this, O priest, pay attention, O house of Israel, give ear, O house of the king, for the judgment is for you, for you have been a snare to Mizpah and a net spread upon Tabor. So God's third accusation against Israel is putting their trust in man. After all that God has said to them through Hosea, you think they would repent. Jonah, who was a prophet to the northern kingdom, went to Nineveh, which wasn't even a part of Israel. He went to a far land and he preached an eight-word sermon. It was repent or God is going to destroy Nineveh. Now, he did look scary because he just came out of the belly of a fish where he'd been for three days, but he preached an eight-word sermon and the whole nation turned to God. Hosea goes through this whole book telling people who should know God, but they never turn back. How did the Israelites respond? Well, first they turned to their idols, then they turned to the Assyrians. Look with me at verses two through six. And the revolters have gone deep into slaughter, but I will discipline all of them. I know Ephraim, and Israel is not hidden from me. For now, O Ephraim, you have played the whore. Israel is defiled. Their deeds do not permit them to return to their God. For the spirit of whoredom is within them, and they know not the Lord. The pride of Israel testify to his face. Israel and Ephraim shall stumble in his guilt. Judah also stumbles with them. With their flock and herds, they shall go seek the Lord, but they will not find him. He has withdrawn from them. So they look to their leaders and their priests. They say, we'll take our flocks and we'll take them up to Bethel and we'll sacrifice them to God because that's always worked in the past. But God tells them they're going to go back to their own religious routines, but it's not going to work this time. It's not going to work because God isn't looking for some ritual, but he's looking at the heart and the motive behind the ritual. He wants that intimate relationship that he said that they had lost. The question for you today is, do you have that relationship with God? And I'm not talking about showing up on church on Sunday. You should do that and that's good. But do you have a relationship with God that even though you come to church every Sunday, you spend time in the word and with God and you have a conversation, you have that intimate relationship. Listen to what Jeremiah told Israel in Jeremiah 6, 8. Be warned, O Jerusalem, lest I turn from you in disgust, lest I make you a desolation and an uninhabited land. And that is what Israel is turning into, an uninhabited land. And later in Jeremiah 14, God tells Jeremiah to stop praying for, for Israel. Jeremiah 14, 11 through 12. The Lord said to me, do not pray for the welfare of this people. 
Thus they fast. I will not hear their cry. And though they burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. But I will consume them by the sword, by famine, and by pestilence. And God is telling Jeremiah that I am not going to listen to their prayers anymore. They are so far in rebellion against me and my ways that I have taught them that I am going to leave them alone. And my distance and my abandonment will speak louder to them and to their hearts than your words ever can. So God's saying I am going to not listen to their rituals anymore because their heart is not with me. And that's what it says here in verse 7 through 9. They have defiled faithfulness with the Lord, for they have borne alien children. Now the new moon shall devour them with their fields. Blow the horn in Gilgal, the trumpet in Ramah. Sound the alarm at Beth-Avon. We'll follow you, O Benjamin. Ephraim shall become a desolation in the day of punishment among the tribes of Israel. I will make known what is sure. The sad thing is we can become so set in our sin and rebellion that God just leaves us to ourselves. Usually we don't even notice it at first. But when we call unto God and we don't find him, we don't hear back from him, then we start to see the result of pushing God away. Sometimes it takes God stepping back and removing his mercy and allowing us to suffer the consequences to wake up. Now this is tough love. Loving us enough that he allows us to suffer and come to our senses so we'll turn back to him. And God has said he's withdrawn himself from them. And now they will find no help or refuge when the Assyrian army comes to attack them. And because of this, they will be made desolate. Now look what it says in verse 10. The prince of Judah has become like those who have moved a landmark. Now these landmarks are boundary stones were used to mark off property. The boundary stones define the border of your property. What God is saying through Hosea is that the leaders have taken what is right and true, and they're now re redefining it. The political leaders of Judea were corrupt and they were cheaters. They were the kind of men who would change anything for their advantage because they thought they could get away with it. And America's like this. We've had three major redefinitions that have moved us away from God. We've looked a man who moved these boundaries. The first major decision that redefined America happened back in 1962 when the Supreme Court made the decision to remove prayer from our schools. You can go back and graph the morality change that happened after that decision, and it's all been downhill since. The Supreme Court decided that there needed to be separation of church and state, but that phrase is not found anywhere in our Constitution. The second major redefinition was in 1973 with Roe v. Wade, where the Supreme Court again legalized abortion. The decision affected the morale condition of our country. We allowed leaders in our country to redefine murder. After 40 years, data suggests that abortion has been anything but good for the U.S. It has made a drop in marriage rate. Two-parent families have dropped, and the living standards have dropped. Because we changed the standard of truth from biblical standard to secular standard, we are no different than Israel was and that's what Hosea is talking about. Now, the third major redefinition for America that's moved us further away from God was back in 2004, when the first state legalized same-sex marriage. Since then, we've seen lots of states that's followed Massachusetts. Even Barack Obama stated that he backed same-sex marriage. He was the first sitting U.S. president to do so. What I'm about to say, I don't say as a political statement, but I say it more as a biblical statement. 
when a leader of a nation deliberately intentionally aligns himself contrary to the explicit command of God's word, the Bible, then the nation is in danger of destruction from the Almighty God. When a leader of the nation boldly and unapologetically states their position against what clearly is defined right here in the word of God, then they're acting no different than what Israel was doing right here in Hosea. Now, I'm not trying to rain on anyone's parade or be all doom and gloom, but what I'm stating is reality here, that when we go against God's word, we set ourselves up for destruction. And Isaiah said that in Isaiah 5.20, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Man has always been confused with good and evil when we define it. Our culture today says a wrong deed is right if the majority of people declare it not to be wrong. And because of this ideology, our moral standards have shifted downward year after year. Divorce was once frowned on. We had laws against fornication and adultery. But now divorce is accepted and you're looked down on if you haven't lived with someone before you get married. The issue really boils down to who or what is the standard by which you measure what is right or wrong. We've become just like the Israelites, and we've turned to man to define the standard, but that standard doesn't change from God's standard. God said that one day we'll all stand before him and we'll be judged on his standard and not man's standard. Now Hosea finishes with God's judgment for their sins, and look what he says in verses 10 through 15. The princes of Judah have become like those who move the landmark upon them. I will pour out my wrath like water. Ephraim is oppressed, crushed in judgment, because he was determined to go after filth. But I am like a moth to Ephraim, and like dry rot to the house of Judah. When Ephraim saw his sickness and Judah his wounds, then Ephraim went to Assyria and sent to the great king. But he's not able to cure you or heal your wound, for I will be like a lion to Ephraim, and like a young lion to the house of Judah." I, even I, will tear away and go away. I will carry off and no one shall rescue. I will return again to my place until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face and in their distress earnestly seek me. God says, I'm going to destroy the fabric just like a moth does. Moths are small, but they are very powerful at destroying clothing. Back in this time, clothing was a way to make a statement of the rich, and they wore colorful and stylish clothing. And moths were one of the most destructive forces against their clothing. He then goes on to say that I'm going to make them rot from within. He's saying God will be the one who eats away and corrodes what Israel and Judah have done. They will no longer be blessed, and because of that, their prosperity will come to an end. Then it gets interesting in verse 13. It says that they turn to Assyria to come and help them. And God is going to send the Assyrians to come and consume the northern kingdom of Israel. What we see here is they're trying to negotiate with the enemy. They're saying, why don't you work with us and be nice to us? In return, we'll give you our money and our treasures. The Assyrian king says, I'll take your money, but I'm still going to conquer you. And God is just in heaven up there shaking his head. Israel, oh Israel, don't you get it? I'm sending them because you don't listen to me or obey my commandments. Hosea says, even though you turn to the Assyrians, they're not going to be able to heal you. They're not going to be able to care for what ails you. Then he finishes saying that God will be like a lion. 
First, God's judgment will come against Israel and Judah in a subtle way, like a moth or like rotting. But now it would be obvious, no longer like a moth, but a lying that brings destruction. The lion is going to come and destroy them. It's going to tear them apart and then carry them away. Now, I don't know about you, but this sounds terrible to me. And sadly, this is what a lot of people think about God when they mess up, when they sin. He's going to come in. He's going to tear me up like a lion. And you could read this and you could have formed that opinion about God and that God's not loving, but he's mean. But that's really not the case. He has tried to warn his people time and time again. He has sent multiple messages through his prophets to them, and they haven't listened. So don't mistake mean with tough love. The question is, what length does God have to go through to reach his people? Think about your own life. Some of you listening today have a testimony just like this. You had strayed so far from God, and you were so unwilling to turn to him that God had to move his protection from you so that you would quit doing what you were doing and turn to him. And that's when you finally cried out to God. God knows exactly what it takes and how much pressure he needs to put on us so that we will bend a knee, so that we will turn back to him. Let me close with this final thought in verse 15. So look back with me. I will return again to my place until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face, and in their distress earnestly seek me. And that's why God is like a lion, because that's what it takes to get stubborn people to return to him. And that's what he's willing to do. He's not mean. He's not having a bad day. But he's using tough love to pursue us, because that's what it takes for some people. God's goal was not destruction, but restoration. And sometimes God has to go to very great lengths to reach those who are far from him. But that is the plan of redemption. He cannot redeem and rescue until there is first repentance. And there can't be repentance until first there is a mission or recognition of sin. And God sent Hosea so that the Israelites and us can recognize our sin and so we can repent and be redeemed and restored to that intimate relationship back with him. But sadly, it often takes tough love from God to allow affliction to come to us so that we will earnestly seek him. So why not seek God now before the affliction starts? God's knocking. Are you listening? Do you have that relationship with him? Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you today, Lord, and we thank you again for our time together. Lord, I thank you for loving us enough that you pursue us. Lord, that it's not that we have to pursue you, but even when we don't love you, you love us. And you pursue us and you give us multiple chances. You're long-suffering. Your love is steadfast for us. Lord, right now I feel like there's someone you're knocking on the door. Maybe they are in the tough love. Maybe they're about to go into the tough love. Maybe you're saying, I'm about to remove my mercy from you. I don't know, but I feel like you're knocking on the heart of someone that is listening today. And Lord, I pray right now that they, whatever it is, they would turn it back to you that they would turn before the affliction comes. If they're in the middle of the affliction, that they would turn to you. Lord, maybe there's one that's listening today that doesn't know you at all. They've done everything in their own strength. Lord, I pray for them today. Lord, that they would recognize that they are a sinner. Lord, that they would admit that they are a sinner and they need you. 
They would confess you as Lord of their life. They would ask you to come in to their heart. Lord, they would confess you before men and others. Lord, we love you. We praise you. We're going to give you all the honor and glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.